No matter who you are, where you are, or what you celebrate, it's only one thing I have to say this holiday season. Hen... Shin... Listening to Common Ride with me. I'm Bruce Kip, and I want to give a shout out to those eight crazy nights. Happy Hanukkah, everybody! Happy Hanukkah! And with me, Steph. Hello, hello, everybody! Yeah, it's the holiday because Thanksgiving, um, Hanukkah, Christmas, Kwanzaa, Diwali was like recently too. Like, there's a lot of holidays time of year. Yep, it is the most wonderful time of the year. I've heard. I guess, like saying. Happy Diwali is good, but also isn't that a technology one? I thought Diwali was one where people couldn't like listen to podcasts during Diwali. Maybe I'm wrong there. <laughs> um, I would not be the one to speak on that at all. But I mean, you might be right. I, I think that everybody should listen to podcasts all the time, but I'm not entirely sure the theological repercussions of such. I think that's a very good statement out of context, too. I hope someone likes it's not called screenshotting. I hope someone just like takes that and makes it into like an audio bit. Yeah. Just on like um really heavy, like trap beat on like TikTok. Like I'm not sure like theological podcast <laughs> or like one of those, uh, you know, those really early morning radio shows where they try to be totally energetic and they take like 50 different sound bites from 50 different shows and they intersperse all those weird sound effects with them. I hope mine's in the middle of one of those someday. It's like, ah, oh, hey, it's the Peacock and Val. Podcasts are theologically important. Exactly. Like but ours would be like, because your name is Kip, I feel like it would be like the Kippers and Bits podcast show. And then it would just be like this whole uh, just in your face wall of massive sounds and like out of context sound bits. They'd have that sound effect of like um, when Austin Powers is like, oh, yeah, like my kibbles and bits. I need to make sure they're working, baby. You know, but a nice baby should I get dead. Like need to have a nice romp. Yeah, except it would just on top of that, it would be this layer of like the pregnant clippy with your voice on it. Uh, pregnant clippy. It's been a minute. I figured we needed a throwback there. The Kipping Clip Show. That's me and pregnant clippy show. There you go. We got an artist now for that uh, logo. If you want to um, win an impromptu co-host opportunity for an episode of like, come ride with me, please make a picture of pregnant Clippy um, and just like uh, put something common ride with me themed in the belly. One of us, one logo, something just, you know. I've got a better one for that. You know, those animatronics that people do for some podcasts. Like especially the let's play ones, I want. Oh, an animatics. Anim- okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm sorry, English. You said animatronics. I was like, yeah. shit. People love podcasts. I was gonna say English is my first language. I'm just not great at it. Um, but yeah, <laughs> that would be a lot of fun. Just to have this pregnant Clippy with Kip's voice 
just whatever out of context phrase you can think of from one of our episodes to have him saying it as a pregnant paperclip. I, I'd pay money what for do the fucking common rider just be charity dodgeball game. I'll just like on the back of my shirt will say like pregnant kippy, you know. It'd be amazing, especially if they could find a way to like integrate all of the common rider main characters in the background, like cheering for you. I mean, <laughs> I'm just imagining like. A bunch of like dudes in the background cheering for me being pregnant. Just like, yeah, you're pregnant from Paperclip. Yeah. Even better, like they all claim to be the father. Just really go for it. Yeah. Some artists like me wearing like the um the chastity belt from the love guru, or then like it's like, oh, like Clippy's trying to open it. <laughs> Get the way in there. With a, a very mischievous grin on his face, or it doesn't work. Clippy's probably... I'm not going to thought, but no. So, um, <laughs> if you can't tell, um, we're here to talk about the hit 2008 Tokusatsu show, Cover Rider Kiva. It's part of our book club. That, oddly enough, doesn't involve paper clips, so, you know, you can could have fast-forwarded for the past first minute of this episode and not really missed anything. Yeah, always keep, like, one of the clip for yourself. One of the clippy for yourself. At least but one. No. Uh, so, yeah, this show, we are doing chunks. Um, it is uh, eight by eight by eight episodes. So, uh, here's episodes nine through 16, which is a bit of the show, honestly. That's a two whole, uh, two whole months of the, like, every Sunday morning or like Saturday morning, but, um, commitment for sure. Yeah. And how are you feeling about this show so far, Steph? Like what's your thought at the end of, um, at the start episode two, I guess. So I actually made these notes, uh, when we did one through eight and I don't think that I shared them. So I'm going to do kind of a condensed version just in case I have, just because, you know, I'm older and sometimes I lose my memory on things. Um, so what I've kind of come to so far is when we went over Kuga, I loved that because he was genuine and funny and the whole setting was very relaxing. It was just very nice atmosphere to get engaged with. And I loved Hibiki because it played between, you know, these teen and adult transitions and it had a very satisfying storyline all around. I like Kiva because it kind of just drop kicks you in the face with action and storyline from the very beginning and it doesn't really let up like and i'm not saying that in like this way that it's just constantly building tension it's not that it's just there are so many different things happening within kiva and they present all these storylines in such a light way that it's very easy to forget just like how in depth the this world and these characters are. So I have very much been enjoying this journey. Like the more episodes we get into, the more I want to watch them because I'm like, okay, what happens next? It's kind of become like my own general hospital. In like the like run of like Hobbit Rider, like and like by this I mean like from like 1999, like 2000 to now, um there's a lot of shows. There's like 23 shows and um, they are um, all very distinct. And there's like a couple bad ones. There's a couple like super standout, like great ones. And there's a couple that like are in this like weird. They're good. And, and like sometimes like very good, like mix of medium. And I think um, 
that's where Kiva gets into where it's like not super remembered or regarded or like has those highs. But I really do think um interesting show to look at with that reputation and see what it does well and what it's saying and like it's and like what its themes are and like even stuff like how it's um super procedural but mm. it has a twist on that compared to a lot of other shows that will do that here's two episodes on this plot you know yeah and i feel like i can understand that because if I was looking at Kiva from the perspective of maybe someone who hadn't really had any exposure to like Toku or, or any kind of common writer series before I could kind of see where you might just look at it and be like, okay, well this is kind of like overblown, but you like the more you give it the opportunity to draw you in, the more episodes you give it, the more you start to realize that despite the fact that it is kind of, low key in some areas compared to other common writer series the characters have a depth that is so completely unexpected and it kind of just once again hits you over the face when you're not expecting it and the way that they do like those um different uh time aspects and connect them to each other is really really clever and it's yeah you know, if you're if it's not something you're really looking for, if you're just kind of watching it for like that zone out value, you probably won't catch that. But they weave those storylines together just in a very I don't I, I almost want to say like a big budget movie kind of way, the way that everything keeps kind of pulling together when you're least expecting it. There's a real um just like economy to the story because of how it's mixing those two plot lines. It's like, oh, it makes sense. We're at the same sets. And we're doing these same things in different ways. And like it makes things like really resonate where like there are some like points and like other oh, shows where it's like, oh, here's the two episode restaurant arc, you know, and like it's right. kind of like, OK, um, something I think, too, is that I've often said that the fun thing about doing like this book club and like reexamining shows is that you could reexamine them without the perspective of the internet in 2008. Mm -hmm. um, and I think this show and like also like Hippogee 2 work there because I think something that happens with Toku fandom is there's like three or four Toku shows coming out every year that will run all year. Uh, that's a lot of stuff to follow. Um, and I think people don't always give the best shot or like a critical shot to older stuff. And they're like, oh, this is what the fandom thinks. Therefore, I'll think it. But I think if you're somebody who um, falls outside of traditional masculinity or like understands what toxic masculinity is or like has a relationship to um, two characters where you don't just think like maybe the 2008 mostly white dude like um, forum culture did that, man, this character's not cool because they're not getting all the babes. Like, I think there's a lot here. Like, there's a lot of. I could see a lot of queer enjoyment of certain elements of the show. And um, like, there's lots of stuff like, Oh, the way this character is acting and mm -hmm. works as a like, protagonist is way different, you know? Oh yeah. I, I will definitely agree with that. And I think that um, a big part of the reason that I have, have the perspective on these shows that I do is because I make a very concerted effort when we talk about shows that we're going to have upcoming 
to not look at any kind of additional opinion on them because I know how fandoms can be. I've been a part of them, you know, my entire life. And I know if I enjoy something, I need to not hear what other people think about it because many a time have I had a tainted opinion because of that. But as far as like the toxic masculinity, that is something that I was thinking about this last run of shows also because this uh, common writer especially has a group of male protagonists that you very much could just hate right off the bat if you don't mm-hmm. take time to kind of examine their atmosphere and their reason for thinking the way they do in their kind of like their gradual transition to realizing that people around them are as important as they are. And I think that that's a very dangerous thing in any fandom to look at a character and immediately just be like, well, there's nothing redeemable about that. So I think that probably having had experience, you know, on this show with you watching um, these storylines play out, I don't rush to that judgment anymore. And it's a lot easier to kind of pack into a show if you don't automatically assume that surface value is how you're supposed to perceive the character. Yeah. And I think that these shows at a point just are like, oh, we know we're going long run. And it's so weird because like, it's just like um, these shows are like simultaneously made for like the four year olds and the 14 year olds and the 40 year olds. And like they're trying to like service all of that. So it's like, oh, this is a cool toy that's being used to express <laughs> angst over here. Like very existence being violent. It's like, oh, that, that's fun. <laughs> On <Yeah>. both ends. <laughs> but I think that's what's fun about it. And maybe it, it kind of helps me being a mom at the age I am now because I still a lot of days feel like a, a fucking 16 year old. So having a teenager myself is very bizarre to me on most days of the year, but it also makes it fun because I can watch shows like this and see like all the different levels they're trying to appeal to people on and, and appreciate the fact that they're including my age group, even if it is like, okay, like I'm not taking my Geritol. Obviously this early in the evening, only a fool would do that. Give me another hour. But <laughs> I, <laughs> I I appreciate yeah. the fact that the effort is there, even if sometimes like I can see it fall completely flat, like the world's worst dad joke or something. I don't want to super skip ahead, but like th- there's this point where I was like, holy shit, the show is just like uh not just for the 2008 dude like wants to see dudes be cool fan because like there's this point in like episode 16 for example where like Wataru gets kicked and he flies and his crop top comes up and just shows off his whole chest and I'm like what the fuck like this is like uh, oh yeah we see you this is for everybody this is for a lot of people and I was like man that and like his eyes were so hurt and I was like yeah this show is like just has a lot of audiences and it knows it I, I think that that's probably one of the reasons why this series has been so much fun to me up to this point, because it it is a series that does that, like it tries to appeal to multiple markets, but it's also in a way like strangely self-aware. So it almost has like this Deadpool dimension of poking fun at itself, like on another level, which to me is always fun. Like it's never fun to see a show that trying that hard and like kind of falling on its face. But when you see a show that's trying that hard in no obvious, like, I get a kick out of that. Like, like you go, girl. That's, that's, you do you. (laughs) 
have I told you about the um, Hodagiri effect or no? I don't think so. Um, so the actor who played um, the main character in like Tomb Raider on um, like Kuga, um, like um, his name is Joe Hodagiri, and like it's like this whole thing of like, oh, like the Hodagiri effect is how a lot of Toku cast really hot dudes because they want the moms to be into it and like also like to buy like their like modeling books and stuff mm-hmm. and that's funny to me but also that's that's not a new that wasn't a new thing because like having watched like so <laughs> there's a show we're watching me and senpai uh from like 1991 92 and there's just a character who's like <laughs> This like really grumpy jazz musician and is like <laughs> constantly like there's this point where like he gets like stopped by the police and then like um tells this female officer um that she's beautiful and like gets out of a ticket by taking her on a date. Oh, <laughs> and it's like, okay, like this is this was already happening guys this was already a thing there were already dudes being cute on these shows well i i think that's been a thing like as long as uh, yeah what are referred to like in american culture as soap operas have been a thing but yeah i especially in like hibiki that was a very big thing like the one of the things that we endlessly admired was uh asuma's mom and the fact was so like out there with her sexuality and like wanting to hit on all these common, you know, hero guys and hell yeah, get it, girl. But I, that is definitely one thing that I appreciate about Toku. Like even in shows where we're watching like this very um, concept of masculinity get raised up, there is never like I, I don't want to say never because obviously as soon as I do, I'm going to watch ten thousand shows with this being a thing, but there isn't as much this thing of trying to stifle um, like female strength. There obviously are some problematic moments here and there, but there is always like this underlying thing of the woman who is at the forefront with the writers is going to have an integral part and they're going to recognize that at some point, even if there are some points you're like, get your head out. Like, that is something that Toku, so far, at least for me, has been very good for. Yeah, it's it's a definite... It's not perfect, but there's definitely parts where you're like, wow, there's at least not a level of insecurity that maybe you're used to seeing in, like, American or, like, Western media oh, yeah. about it, you know? Yeah, and even when, as I said before, like, even when there are parts that are a little bit problematic it seems like there's always like a counterbalance where they're showing the female character getting kind of like her comeuppance or her you know whatever it is she was looking for in the show and that's definitely something i've admired about all the shows we've watched up until this point like obviously there are some areas where i wished that things had stepped up a little bit more but there's never as much like the blatant you know, women have to be the anti-hero like there is in Western culture. I think, too, that um, Hub Riders franchise that I often compare to like Star Wars or like Marvel DC, where it's like important and people want to write important stories there because it's like they like the action and it matters 
to them this like whole genre mm-hmm. and and it's kind of weird to see like um the way that there's even been like increased like um they've definitely seemed to make an effort to improve their female characters and also like they've had like a a like prominent like non-binary character recently like they had like a big kind of like um anniversary special web series and one of the actors who um had in the time since uh her show ended come out as trans like was featured with the right pronouns like okay and that's like not the norm for japan (laughs) like there's a lot of like modern issues with like any kind of care for lgbt like issues or even like general like feminism you know Oh, yeah, for sure. And I definitely admire the fact that they were not only willing to put that on the forefront, but not be apologetic about it. And I think that that's one of the greater things like, you know, off mic, you and I were talking about how, you know, the next generations are are becoming more woke and like willing to stand up in in all these different ways. And I think that things wake up. Exactly. (laughs) These are a reflection of the times that we're living in. and. It's not only great that, you know, we're looking at major studios starting to put these things into recognition, but the fact that even before they were as major as they are, like, Toku has always seemed to not have as big of an issue with being representative. And once again, obviously not perfect, and there are a lot of areas for improvement, but it just seems like in a lot of things that we've watched so far there seems to be a little bit more progressive representation of differences than there is in Western media or has been historically in Western media. You know, once again, obviously we're all trying to improve, but Toku kind of seems like it was there before it was the cool thing to do. I mean, not to be the long-term fan of Toku, but Yes, there's not a lot of scenes of Toku of like, um, let's all walk towards the camera and be the girls rock. <laughs> right. And make Thanos be like, oh, I'm f- feminist. Like, whatever, <laughs> like, Marvel's doing. And also stuff where it's like, yeah, like, we just got like a bunch of people in a quarry and we did like a big, like, huge battle. Or, oh, yeah, we just had women on the cast. <laughs> Captain Marvel came in and saved the day. Everything's fine, you guys. Yeah, um, I do have a very important cross-podcast update, though, for us. Oh, please share. When you mentioned um, Hasu's mom, I remembered that... Remember um, Hibuki from uh, that show? Yeah, yeah. So um, he is also a tuxedo mask in the Pretty Guardian live-action Sailor Moon show. No fucking, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to watch it. I haven't seen anything Sailor Moon since I was in junior high. I really need to pick that back up. In the name of the moon, I'll podcast you as our uh, monthly show, me and Allie on the feed for that. And uh, comparing that anime to that live action is a lot of fun. They're so interesting. Pretty Guardian Sailor Moon is great. It's so low budget in the best ways. And like, it's so much and there's a part where I was like, oh, he's like, he, he, is that a bookie? <laughs> <laughs> and apparently, like, that show finished filming like two months before he started filming for like, uh, for like, uh, Hibiki 2. So it's just like, okay, like, 
He just had a time. Oh, that's perfect. I love it. Um, so anyone who hasn't listened yet, I'm still getting caught up on back episodes, but I very much enjoy listening to uh, Kip and Allie on um, In the Name of the Moon. I'll podcast you. Is that right? Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. So definitely give that a shout. Um, and, you know, Sailor Moon, because obviously that's cool as hell. But I love the fact that he was the voice for that. That's perfect somehow in my mind for him to play that role that's no um he plays like the character live action oh goodness okay yeah definitely gonna have to find that yeah in the 2004 series so it's just like he's there and he's in a green jacket and he's being a dick and he like has some roses sometimes (laughs) well sounds about like yeah that's reminiscent yes but um speaking of roses there is a bloody rose that Kevin Rudd Akiva, and we sh- should talk about these episodes. How is that on the scale of segues? <laughs> is that anything? That's, um, I'd say it's better than some of the ones that you've done. Oh, I was going <laughs> to say, that's a low-tier transition, so, yeah, okay. I didn't say it, you did. Fair enough. Uh, so, <laughs> the first arc was episode uh, 9, Symphony, Ixa, Fist On. And 10, Saber Dance, Glassy Melody. So basically, uh, this whole thing centers around um, Wataru meets... (laughs) Sorry, did I blow the load too quick? The problem is, you'll be blowing your load eight times this week, because everything's (laughs) about daddy issues. So make sure you drink some Gatorade and... But no, yeah, uh, so like, yeah, so... Wataru is sad he can't make as good of violins as his dad. He ends up meeting this guy, um, Mr. Oberu, who's like a master violin repairist He's and special. also a fangar. Specialist? Master yeah. repairist? Yeah, I was like, what an odd job title, but okay, do you. And uh, the whole arc that we see is that in the 80s, he had made this black violin called Black Star and he would hunt down people that owned it that weren't worthy and then like uh he meets um otoya who um helps him escape after he hears otoya's music and decides not to eat anyone again but he when he hears too much like sound he starts to go berserk and just uh what do you think of this arc with this character i guess like between these like two episodes i felt like out of all the monsters that we've seen up to this point, he was probably my favorite. Um, And it wasn't just because they kind of like built in this um, understandable reason for him to kind of flip out, but just because his character in general, you could see like, and this is definitely a testament to the actor. You could see that he wanted to be like that mentor figure. He very much wanted to live in this world where all he was doing was being in, like, the violin world. He wanted to listen to the music. He wanted to, like, create. He wanted to just be an artist. And I liked this storyline so much because it showed his struggle with, like, that part of him that was a monster, but also that part of him that had so much humanity that he just wanted to study art. So... I appreciated how in-depth they made that character, even if he was at 
you know, the end of the line bound to be like a monster within the story. He is also a a um returning character from uh Camarada like Fies. Uh there he actually plays like a like rose themed villain there. So that's another uh, rose. Speaking of roses, I'm totally not gonna go and edit this transition back in, but uh regardless, uh just just that's fun, but I I couldn't help but like I love how much of a puppy Wataru is and it's used in ways where I'm like not sure am I supposed to be like getting some like romantic vibes here is it just that he like loves everybody and is like oh yes you're nice to me and you like violins I'll do anything for you I kind of struggled with that too and it I think that when you have a character like that like that is like the thing like you don't know exactly why they feel the affinity affinity that they do towards people but i think that that's what makes him very interesting is like a hero character is the fact Mm -hmm. that you can tell he clearly has like some like mental stuff he needs to work through like he has this list of like traumas that he really should be actively working past, but he plays that character in such a very realistic way. Like anybody who has been through like some kind of trauma, like he has understands that response to wanting to please people and wanting to want people around you. So it's very interesting, like from a watching standpoint to see him slowly grow into his own and kind of figure out what it is he wants to do and um, try and figure out how he's going to do that, regardless of like the voices in his head telling him he has to be this thing. I think too, that he's the shy character with a pretty face and big eyes and big lips that like loves everybody and um, is like just so willing to start to love them and like i think that's why he's not regarded well by a fandom that was mostly seeing him as like how could he's not cool but also he does kind of seem like um fuck i don't know the right stuff um is there like a yaoi wiki i can find this up i'm sure there is <laughs> there's some term where it's like oh he's like the the bottom oh uh, yeah yeah no I- mean though because like even in the shows that we've watched in the past Hibiki and Kuka like you couldn't justify either of them being like alpha males in any sense of the word the yuke there you go yeah they're both you know strong guys are confident in their decisions but you know I am dealing for the first time with a hero that doesn't recognize himself in any kind of like heroic light. And it's very cool to kind of see how he comes to terms, not only with realizing what he can do, but how much of an impact he can have when it comes to people he cares about. And that's different from the other common writers that we've dealt with thus far, because they were both very single-minded on what's good for the group. We're now, we're dealing with a writer who's like, no, I'm dealing with people on an individual basis. And, you know, this person might be a horror show to the rest of the world, but I can see some good in him. So it's a really good, like, concept to play off of. I think that 
it's just it's cool that the franchise will be like yeah let's just like talk about what's everything that a guy in 2008 is being said in the newspaper shouldn't be or is being said on like the Huffington Post of Japan or whatever like oh man these guys are terrible they're shy and they don't want to have cool jobs and it's like no like that's a cool protagonist that's a good person and I think um Wataru just is such a great just he's just so nice and it's great and everything about him is just like having these relationships is him processing this stuff it's like as far as we can tell he basically lived alone making violins before the show starts like he knew like one girl who had a crush on him that's like three or four years younger than him but that's it Mm -hmm. and like a bat (laughs) that's all he knew (laughs) and but i think that's kind of what makes him fun too is because i feel like in previous series we would see the writer you know go through this battle and he would win it and then he would go off and do his thing whether it was like you know meditating or going to train more of this but we're watching this series now and this hero he'll beat someone up and then you'll see him like in a steamy bath the very next scene like questioning his entire existence and it just skinny naked man with his hairy legs just all the time Exactly. Yeah. And they're not trying to make him into something he is. And that's why I say, like, in a lot of respects, Toku was kind of ahead of its time because it was showing people, especially men, being vulnerable. And that just wasn't yeah. what you saw. So it was, I, I mean, he's just, he's a refreshing character all around, but especially for the fact that he isn't afraid to be vulnerable. And that is very nice to see, like, from a superhero. And uh, there's a couple more fun things happening here, though, because I um, we start to get like um, more inklings from the organization that Yuri and Megumi like works for. Like they have like a writer system and like it's just being done in the 80s and they want to like start using it soon. There's stuff like they're like uh, there's different reasons why the mother and daughter both are being denied that system, which is interesting and like i want to see how that progresses from here because i have seen this series previously but also i don't remember right a lot of it like in detail you know yeah and i i have enjoyed like kind of the way they've done the byplay through the um main female characters through the past and present just because it once again is breaching into that territory where it feels very genuine even if there are some very frustrating like plot points, they work really hard to kind of tie all of those themes together. And it's very neat to see. Yeah. I think too, that um, the stuff in the eighties is very over the top that lets the stuff in the two thousands be very slice of life. Like there's this point where they go on a sexy, like a, like um, they go to a sexy auction and Mm -hmm. then like, Oh, Toya shows up in like a like red like um <laughs> Tengu mask, I think. It just like keeps bidding. Mm-hmm. Even though they're on the same team, apparently. Yeah. Um I liked his character a lot. Um, even more once I found out like his connection to the bigger storyline. But I just appreciate the fact that it, 
as an actor, the person playing that character wasn't afraid to goof off as hard as they did. And, like, he did through, up until the point of the series we've watched now, like, he has no problem, like, taking pratfalls or, like, playing the fool or, you know, even kind of putting people down if they deserve it just to kind of establish his presence in the world. I love how they're mirroring Wataru being able to talk to people and not just be crippled by like his fear of the world, like his like whole like agoraphobia or like people phobia and how that's being like the alternate arc is happening. where like, we're seeing Otoya be like, Oh, I can care for people and have some level of like self reflection or like even like awareness or care for other people that those two things are happening in tandem in the opposite direction is nice. Yeah. And that was actually one of my notes. I very much appreciated um, the writers drawing that dichotomy between him and his dad, especially because his dad was like this very like fun loving, very willing to play like the just or charismatic guy. And then, you know, you draw that parallel to his son being someone who is a like who, you know, for the first one or two episodes of the series, literally believes breathing the air is going to kill him. And to see him kind of slowly come out of his shell and to get the backstory on his dad at the same time creates a really interesting storyline within the whole series that I've just gotten a huge kick out of. And he's the main character. I get that his dad is a louder character, but Wataru is very clearly the main character here. He is, yeah. even if he wasn't the titular Kavad Rider Kiva, he's the main character here. And like, I think people often forget that, especially in like, I haven't seen Toku since I was like, or like this Toku series since I was 14. And I like this character better because character was too nice. No, main character. Uh, and just, yeah. Um, I do like. One small bit from uh, episode nine is that Yuri says, I could play violin and then like kills fish with it. She's so bad at violin. I literally have that in my notes. I was like, okay, that would be me playing the violin first off. But the fact that in another scene, they show like these belly up fish. That is the funniest thing I have ever seen in a TV show before. I had to pause because I laughed for so long after seeing that. Like I knew it was supposed to be moment but goddamn that's too much yeah it just i'm glad that um i'm there's more to say on yuri and her relationship to the bender life as we go forward but like i just like the way they're doing it at least is like insofar as like it, this isn't all encompassing there's still stuff going on there's still going to be other like facets to them it's like oh yeah i think i'm really good at violin but i kill yes. fish it's a very good character trait well not only that but like having the um the male protagonist in her life constantly defend her while she's playing this horrible music like it, to me there's something about that that just it screams loyalty, like looking at someone you love and knowing they're horrible about something, but willing to defend them when other people criticize them is just so much fun. I think Otoya saying, stop that. You don't play right. This is bad. Let somebody play it or don't let it be played it was great, though. Like That actually made me ship them a little bit. It was. And I kind of like rolled my eyes at him at that point. But, you know, 
Juris, Juro stepped up to defend her, and then, you know, later on, you kind of, like, start to learn more about the character's motivations. Like, uh, maybe that wasn't the greatest thing, but at that moment, it was just fucking hilarious. Just the way that the three of them interacted with each other through those couple of scenes. Um, what do you think of seeing the new Kamen Rider come to Ixa? I, um, I don't know, I... I had some mixed feelings on that. Obviously, there was a part of me that was like, hell yeah, superhero, yeah, that's what we're supposed to do. But on the other hand, I was like, this isn't really how we've done common Riders up to this point, and I'm not hmm. entirely sure how I feel about it. And then, obviously, as we get further into the series, you know, some of my suspicions were a little bit confirmed. So it's it's interesting to see how this kind of storyline with this suit plays out in conjunction with the characters also. What do you mean by like, this isn't how we do common Riders? Well, okay, so this might seem like a small thing, but it's just something that came to me. And every other common Rider, when I've been watching it, when they transition to the hero status, they always, like, the suit all comes together on top of them. And it's a very obvious way that they do it and have done it. But with this particular series, with this particular um, build, they build it outside of the character and then step them into it, which, I mean, it may or may not mean anything, but to me, it's just like, that's not, it, it, it just, it doesn't feel right because it isn't how the writers have put on them their suits up until this point. So, oh. Yeah. Common Rider Kuga, the Hibiki Riders, and Kiva. That's so. A lot of Common Riders are like technology based. So this is your first technology themed rider, though, right? Yeah, yeah. Huh. The other guys have been old school up until this point. Yeah. Yeah. No. Um. This is definitely um like a more piece. Uh, this design is meant to feel that way a little bit like too insofar as like um it's meant to seem like technology and like also with the version in the 80s be like malfunctioning hardly working crap technology <laughs> but right yeah that's interesting um yeah like i said i don't know if it means anything or not but just for me it was kind of jarring because i've always watched these suits these outfits be put on in a very particular way so I don't know, really interesting. Kind of weird for me so <laughs> yeah um he's christian themed he's a knight he's got holy powers because he like has like the sun behind him when he does his like Ugh. slash yeah you know <laughs> that kind of like goes to episode like 10 where um wataru saves Amura and Nago is so fucking pissed off. It's like, I'm always right. I'm never wrong. What the hell are you doing? Why would you ever question me? And like that comes up later too. He's like, Wataru apologizes. And then like Nago's like, I'll forgive you as long as you never question me again. And like, it's like, that's treated as like good. It's like, I did not realize what a shit heel this guy was and how obvious it is in the show. Cause like in like my memory, he's an asshole, but he gets better. But the show really isn't like pulling punches on this guy being a piece of shit. Right. And I think that's something that I 
I definitely put in my notes was like, okay, this is a gaslighting asshole right here. Because he does that. Like, he will lash out at people for something completely insignificant, like, in the real-world aspect of things, but are, you know, for whatever reason, important to him. And then he'll do something small, like, you know, when he gave the boys the drinks and they were just these bottles of water. And then later on, like, gets offended over the music they're playing. And it's just... I fucking love that. (laughs) This isn't a good guy. Like, this is a guy who flies off the handle if the smallest thing isn't the way he wants it to be. Like, this isn't, you know, red flags. This isn't a human. This is a walking red flag. Like, come on, guys. And, like... I think Magooby was maybe being a little hurtful when this came up a couple episodes ago, like in like our like last chunk. But she did say, and it wasn't really even defended for him. Yeah, he he made his dad commit suicide. That's a big fucking thing to not even struggle with. Be like, yeah, I did do that, and like he just kind of is like, yes, and I'm not sorry. <laughs> like that's a lot, you know. Yeah. Like, yeah, and I I will say with complete honesty, I I don't like my family for the most part. I, I and I could take or leave a lot of you know interaction with them. I would never be happy if any of them died, and that's a pretty big reflection on your character to be that out of touch with people. That you know, for you, it's just okay if that's you know something that's not a part of your life anymore. Like, dude, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> And also, like, when it comes up, he treats it as, like, his burden that he was so pure ethically that his father couldn't take it. <laughs> yeah, like, oh, like, fuck, dude. It, I know you have, but just for the general audience, for anybody who's ever played, like, any kind of tabletop, this is the guy you need to watch out for. Because he not only is a murder hobo, but he's a murder who has what he thinks is a divine purpose. And those are the worst kind of people to deal with. He's a he lawful character. Ever convince them that what they're doing is wrong. I think too that um, you for the most part haven't seen negative. A lot of copywriter shows like to in- introduce copywriters who aren't good people. Right. Um, And like, he's maybe a little lower key than some. And like, is it meant to be like entirely irredeemable? But like, There's definitely shows where it's like, yeah, here's this guy who like got really bored at college. So he just like started to crucify people because he got copywriter powers. Like, oh, that's cool. Uh, So like he's pretty much a fucking fallout character is what happened. (laughs) So like he's not as like plainly crucifying people, but he's definitely not meant to be like a good person. I think like sometimes people forget that that could happen outside of like the boys. It's like. It like does not to be like a big parody, super obvious neon sign. I'm a bad guy for somebody to be a piece of shit. Right. I mean, what he essentially is, is every politician that anyone has ever believed in. And I I don't mean to be that cynical, but that's exactly what it is. Like, he is the guy that tells all of your worst fears about minorities are confirmed. He is the person that is telling you that everyone in the world you know, a significant group of people are stealing your job. He is that guy. Like, he is the type of guy that would reach pretty high office politically because he knows how to play people. And 
you know, he may or may not end up being a hopes the Pete Buttigieg of copywriters. Exactly. No, and that's what I'm saying. Like, he probably will have a redemptive arc just because that tends to be how these type of shows go. But in this forefront, you don't have to look at him as a character with redeemable qualities because yeah. they're intentionally not painting him that way. They're intentionally painting him as someone who is deeply flawed and deeply troubled. And that's supposed to be part of the fun of the show. And I think people forget that sometimes. Like, yeah, you don't have to like a character before they get redeemed or like before they change. Like, and like, it's not like he's doing stuff that's like, he's not like, there's certain things that are hard to come back from. He's a real piece of shit in a way where like, you could like also see him learning some stuff. Like there's definitely been some characters in the past few years. It's like, Hey, that guy did too much. Like you got to cut that out guys. Like stop trying to do this. <laughs> We're not taking over the world right now. Relax. Uh, but yeah. Um, and we get the rest of this whole arc and just the way that like Omaru dies though made me so sad is like he gets like helped by like by like uh Otoya in the 80s who like can't break his guitar because it's done nothing his violin because it's like done nothing wrong and then like he like goes in the 2000s to like find it where he like put it underwater after he gets spared by Wataru but then like in the way is Nago who just kills him. Uh. Yeah, that was really heartbreaking because it felt like that was a character who could have had a very cool redemptive arc, but I understand like for the sake of that storyline why they had to play it that way. Because it definitely shows a distinct difference between all the generations and the father and the son. Like They have the same amount of empathy toward him, but the way that they let those storylines play out very naturally with the same character. I thought was very cool also. Yeah. And um, I love that he glasses onto his sunken, like cursed guitar. <laughs> um, And that brings us to the, to the second arc though, uh, which is uh, episode 11 rolling stone dr- door, t- rolling stone door of dreams and first live golden speed. Now, uh, the first episode here starts with Kivat teaching us about rock and roll in like a very clinical way. Like, oh, is this is like how we talk about other culture from other places in school. Like, this is like, oh yeah, it's weird to hear something that's just like understood be talked about like this. Especially when they said it was uh, soul music combined with traditional Irish Celtic. And I was like, I'm going to have to fact check that because I don't think it's right. I mean, same with what we get taught in school. Like, oh, did you know that um, traditional Caribbean music is like whatever? And, yeah, exactly. this. we get taught a lot of whitewashed things in our culture. So, yeah. Um, so the main like thrust here becomes that there's this guy, Kengo, whose band breaks up um, and then um He's trying to find like another band basically because he wants to like keep doing music. I have this whole note here that is dead mom and X is done. Oh, yeah. um, Because Yuri is like, oh, yeah, my mom's dead and I'm sad. And then um, like two scenes later, Megumi's like, my mom's dead and I'm sad. Yeah. Yeah. They did a recycle that plot point a couple of times i mean like 
how do you feel about that? Because I, so Megumi, as far as we could tell, her, the way she talks about her mom, her mom did not die violently, but y- Yuri's mom did. But they both have a case of mommy issues. The dead mom. Yeah. yeah. And like their <laughs> mom's <laughs> cliffside graves are next to each other. <laughs> I am. I feel like that it was very contrived and I'm not, I'm not saying that to be insulting to anyone who's lost a parent, obviously, because that shit sucks. And I definitely empathize, but the fact that they worked so hard to try and marry those Mm -hmm. situations together and try to make that whole cliffside. Yes. Everybody's gravestone is in the same area thing work. Uh, okay, that was breaching a bit, fellas. I've named my son after the two bravest wizards I ever do. Severus <laughs> Albus Dumbledore. <laughs> and um, Break Beak or whatever the fuck that Phoenix's name was. Yeah. But so, yeah, it's definitely a pinch point for this format, though, too, because like they can't have a bunch of 22 year olds be f- 44 year olds very convincingly and also explain why they weren't part of the plot and let the current cast have stuff to to do so like like, there's some characters that we do see 22 years later there's some characters that we see um in like supernatural ways like oh why are they living in like the castle now and then there's also just like characters who's like oh they just have to it we just have to intuit that they died at some point in like the 90s or 80s or like between in this 22 year gap, they died in a way where their kids are sad that they weren't always around, you know? Right. Yeah. And in a way, I do appreciate the fact that they didn't go like that um, very contrived media way to do things. We're just like, oh, well, the woman was sexually assaulted and that's how she found her side in the other. No, yeah. okay. They just they put up a couple gravestones and made kind of generic, like plot hole like dust. I'd rather have that. <laughs> it's lightly touched upon of us. Like we cannot make this twenty-two-year-old woman look forty-four. We tried. We don't know what to do. She died in the nineties, <laughs> <laughs> and she was still hot. So don't worry, guys. Yeah, she was super hot in the nineties, and she was super. <laughs> dead now it's great you love it that's what we love you love the way you look that's warehouse uh and so kango is great he just is like yeah rock and roll and like he meets wataru because wataru is like on a walk and it's like oh like Momuro told me to make my own kind of violin not try to be like my dad and like he hears the music is like what's that and then Kango has this great line of, you don't know what rock is? Were you living under what? Actually, his favorite line for me was, um, okay, I'm going to use my rock to roll the world. And I was like, hell yeah, I'm getting that as that dude knows what's up. Uh, that might make you sound like you just really love the chronic. <laughs> I mean, that too. <laughs> uh, but so like... This is another case of Wataru just like finding a friend, but also there's some shippy vibes to it. Right. Oh, hey. And he just loves this dude. He's like, oh, yeah. And like when people are saying, 
oh yeah, like your friends. He's like super happy about it too. So it's like it's very nice. This yeah, local there was, boy is pleasant. Definitely like top bottom heavy vibes with that whole series of interactions there. But I appreciated it. I mean, it was a fun story. And um, Shizuka joins their band and like Megumi tries to, but she like had too many Irish coffees and she can't join the band. Her on Irish coffee is probably one of my favorite storylines ever. Um, just because they like even did the um, blushed cheekbones to make it look like she was all in on those Irish coffee. Yeah. Um, there's this great point where in like a later scene, she's like just like trading, working out, and she's jogging. And then Nago shows up to like jog with me, like, you can't beat me. Like, I'm so much better than you. Like, I can jog faster than you. And he's in jeans jogging with her. And it's just so fucking hilarious to me. Oh, yeah, for sure. It, it was even funnier because you just know he's the type of guy that would do that to feel like, you know, I'm in skinny jeans, but I can still kick your ass. You know, I haven't jogged since the early 80s, but I got this. I mean, and then he fights the spider, who is a recurring character in the show, with the puppets and the chew and the choo-choo-choo. Oh, God. And the creepy. First. Um, and then we see in the um, in the 80s that uh, Yuri and Hotoya have been talking, and she's in a good mood because she's like, I'm going to be Ixa. They get like attacked by a like Fangire, and that's when Ixa shows up, and it's like Jiro, and uh, she is not happy. She's very upset at that. Honestly, she's like murderous. Yeah, understandable. I mean, she was in love with Jiro, and he was doing this all behind her back, and then it shows up to be this robotic form that she thought she had a claim on. So, yeah, there was a lot of conflicting emotions. This series of episodes just because once you've got the kind of background on the characters ugh, you find yourself empathizing with them there's also the first fight scene between Ixit and Kiva and man just like Nago beats the shit out of him like yeah. he rides more like up an elevator to beat the shit out of him it's <laughs> that whole scene lets you know just how much is going to happen in the future because, you know, they can't let it stand that way, so. Yeah, um, and he gets tossed in the water, which is the Toku tradition of getting your ass kicked and of course. like going in a river. <laughs> you know. Um, and yeah, there's um, that leads to episode like 12 where it's like the spider finds Kiva and starts to poke him and then it's like gonna bash his head with a rock with that sees his hand move and like runs away. Which is very spider-like, so yeah. I like how Wataru got the red guitar and also he's like just good enough at, he's good enough at bass where he like gives like immediately like in this band like Kengo is like very excited but um, the scene you were mentioning uh, where like Nago brings them waters, that happens and like he finds out that Wataru is like injured and he immediately takes off his fucking scarf and is like, oh, like, let me pop your joint back in and put my like scarf around you and help you out. It'll heal in no time. He doesn't do that thing where he's like, this is where I beat Kiva on, <laughs> on the arm, you know? Right. Yeah, that whole thing was very weird to me because I felt like even if they hadn't had a whole lot of interaction 
with each other up to that point, except for, like, a, a very negative time. But even with that whole thing of them having that break between having, like, battled each other, there was still that part of me that was like, how did he not recognize this? Probably something he did. Like, this isn't a natural bruise that normal people get unless they're doing something very physically active. So, mm -hmm. it was a strange scene, but it ended up playing out really well, I think. It, it kind of, like, showed the depth of each character by the time it was finished. And he punches Kengo for playing music where you don't want him to. Yeah, which is funny because that's exactly what he, like, battled that, uh, the one that was uh, teaching the main mm. character the violin for was, yeah. you know, he went crazy because he had to hear he didn't want he fucking stepped on his Walkman. So next he's beating up people for playing music that he doesn't want to hear. Like, it it was a very good way to play the characters, but, you know, as someone who's watching it, I'm like, what the fuck, dude? Do you not, like, see your hypocrisy here? I mean, the answer is no. Oh, obviously, but yeah. <laughs> um, Yuri and Otoya go on a very weird date in the 80s. Uh, <laughs> it was a lot. Still one of my favorite dates, just because I wrote myself a note that said, I'm sorry, but anytime anyone, like, shovels that much food into their face that fast, it's fucking hilarious. I don't care who it is. Yeah, because she, like, eats, like, a bunch of steaks and wins free steak, and then they go on a bunch of rides, and, like, they go on a boat, and, like, she jumps in the water and is like, if you love me, you'd, like, jump in with me. Then, like, he jumps in, but he can't swim. <laughs> it was crowds. Uh... And then, like, she says something to the effect of, like, let's do more, like, flirts a bit. Let's go get crazy. And what do you think about his response to that? I was surprised, honestly, because it, obviously you can tell that the guy who's playing him is a good actor. But the fact that him as a character, like, was willing to step out of that situation and be like, look, we've had a very great day in this all the things that I've dreamed about, like we've done them, but for him to have like that very intense moment of self recognition and be like, "This, this isn't you. Like you're you hide away from else, and I'm not cool with that." That was a very cool way to like play that whole interaction because of how many emotions were involved. And the show did it in a way that like neither party could really be that hurt over it because it was so brutally honest but it was so perfectly timed. Like it, it, it was just very well done. Yeah. It also shows that like he did pick her. He's still a weird pest, but I guess like the implication of the show is like, he immediately fell in love with her and knew her, which is a bad implication because of real life. Right. Dudes. Yeah. But like, that is the, like he, like he, didn't just think she was hot. He like understood her in a way like that's what happens. Like what the show is saying happened and why like he's so into her, but also mm -hmm. like that's why he knows here that he doesn't just want to make out or eat crepes or whatever. Right. And I, I thought that was very cool because even with him, like, you know, in that storyline, they pit him against uh, Jiro constantly and Jiro obviously. And that is, you know, he's the alpha male. He is the guy that most girls would probably swoon over. Excuse me. But the fact that he was willing to, like, have this perfect day with the woman he could love of 
life, but still recognize that she was going through some shit that didn't have anything to do with him. That was really forward thinking and definitely something to, you know, kind of look at when you're in a relationship. Like, that's the person you want on your side, not the person that just, you know, steps in every once in a while to punch out someone who's looking at you weird. I did appreciate how, like, I think the justification of, okay, the system is is messed up. That's why Jiro's using it. But also... (laughs) Like, I fucking love the way that he hammed up being in the hospital, like, the whole time. He was like, oh, this hurts so bad, but she's going to have so many of my fucking kids. It's going to be great. He said she's going to have, like, my puppies, and I am stretched. I was like, you're my favorite dude out of all the dudes. If you have to say something like that, I can't stand you now. But, like, I just love how, like, he's in the hospital bed, like, in super pain, but also, like, super hammered up. Like to make her love him more. That's like, yeah. yeah, yeah. He knew what he was doing the whole time. It was hilarious. Don't get me wrong, but on the other hand, I was like, what a fucking scumbag! What is that? At least we don't know. We just go back to later for this one, but just um. <laughs> and in the two thousands, Wataru uh, turns to singer because he can't play bass, but Megumi can play bass because. You know, whenever I beat the other main characters in my life, we have the right skills for the job. Of course. That's why I can play the gig bass and you play the drums. Yeah, I'm constantly just like on that tin. I didn't have a name for a drum that was fun. I don't have a name for a bass that's fun. Yeah, I was on those like Sasquatch flippers and it was good. I was good. on those uh, six and nines and uh, yeah, it was a party. Um, I don't know what happened. <laughs> the writers fight, um, and like Wataru like um loses the scarf, it floats away when he gets on his bike, which leads to a bike fight. But this fight like actually started because like the spider gets stopped by Nago and says, "Hey, Kiva's alive," and Nago's like, "Okay, you're gonna be my bait," and like he even shoots the spider when he tries to help him fight Kiva. Mm-hmm. Um, and. Wataru like wins the bike fight because he has this power up that I really think this might be the only time he ever uses it. <laughs> this like gold arbor for his bike that's all CG. I don't remember seeing this anymore. Maybe like in the movie it shows up once, but like two times maybe in all of Kiva. This this fucking motorcycle booster just popped up out of a skyscraper out of nowhere. This poor innocent skyscraper had nothing. <laughs> I wonder how many material objects are just like, I am tired of taking care of riders. Like, seriously. Fuck the common riders. I'm over it. I have a soft spot for the one-off things that, like, like there are, like, some definite, like, here's a one-time use power-up that you only use once and never comes back. Uh, Yeah, and um, that leads to him having a better bike and being able to beat Nago, who's very upset about it in the mud. Um, and then we get the scene at the end, uh, where the band plays. And what does Wataru do at the end here with the band, Steph? This, uh, this whole thing with the band always left me in awe because I enjoyed the music that they played so much. Um, but I also enjoyed just the way that they kind of played that dynamic between him and the lead singer where it was always just this thing of, yeah, they wanted to paint it as him, like, always being the one that was helping the lead out. But on the other hand, like, 
they were building each other's confidence also. Um, so I enjoyed that interaction just so, so much. <laughs> and I love how he became the singer and he starts to sing and he's like, what happens? Like at a certain point he has a bad dream, but like not being able to sing at people like, right. He has that stage right, where he like completely locks up. Yeah. And that happens, but then he starts to sing and it's like a whole big moment for him too. Yeah, and it it completely like plays off of the nightmare he had. Like it was all the same dress people, and they were rocking out to him singing, which was very neat to kind of see come into form. Um, now I don't want to watch the whole song, but um, in the uh, in section five of our outline, I did add the music video for this song that uh, was made like officially. Oh, I want to check this out. Yeah, this is a. Uh, Kiva MV Destiny's Place is like the official one. It was subbed by a uh, TV Nihon back in the day. It's from a uh, 2008. Yeah. Um. So Kiva is especially known for having maybe th- most of the cast does sing for the, or like their character songs because like uh Wataru Nago Megumi Hotoya and I think Yuri all sing. On the soundtrack for the show. Maybe somebody else too. I don't know. All right, Steph, you hear me now? Yep, good. All right. That was the uh, official the official music video for the insert song Destiny's Play, which they also perform at this concert in the show. And it's also is like he's the actual singer for this band, but it's also a band they made just for the show. Because <laughs> sometimes he shows to be like, oh, we made two bands that are only exists to make music for this writer show using the cast members and some other people. Oh my. Yeah, uh, that was great. I love him shirtless and like singing. <laughs> it was so much. <laughs> I was not expecting that, but yeah, it was it was definitely a fun video. And like he was posing. It was like this like scrawny dude and then it's like like this guy was like, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and there are like a Kiva has more than usual. I think they might have like eight music videos that they record for this, sh- like twelve oh or so God. songs, and eight of them get videos. Yeah, <laughs> it's a lot. <laughs> yeah, uh, seems like it. But no, um, that does bring us though to where we are now, which is we are um in the last stretch, uh, and our last couple episodes. So episode 13 has the best name of anything we've ever watched. It's episode 13, Unfinished Daddy Fight. Mm. Uh, I don't think it lives up to that name, uh, but... <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like that name promised me a lot more Rule 34 porn than I actually got. Yeah, uh, but... And then that is in an arc with episode 14, um, Pomp and Circumstance, Thunderstrike Purple Eye, which is also yeah. a lot. <laughs> yeah. But no, so the whole arc here is that there's this dude who's just scamming people who are aspiring artists with nothing to show for it, really. He just takes their buddy. Yeah. Um, and then also he eats them. <laughs> yeah, he's pretty much every guy on pra- Craigslist that says, give me 10 bucks, I'll get you to all the best, you know, agents of promoters. You just have to have my house alone wearing only underwear. That's it. 
all you gotta do. I, when I was in college, I had this like point where I was trying to find a place to stay during the summer. And um, I'm afraid of where this story is going. I had this person. Oh, she's like, hey, like you have some a like room and stuff. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just like, no, um, I am a nudist. So I was like, OK, um, that's cool. And then stop messaging him. And then like he was like, well, if you want, just like send me some pictures of yourself. And then like I did get like a just clearly not him dick pic of like just this absurd wiener and i was like that's not even like <laughs> how does blood work sir <laughs> i've had porns that were more realistic mister you need to step it up a notch when the like wood panel of your house is clearly distorted so badly by your dick pic like photoshop i think it's fine sir but no uh so regardless of <laughs> <laughs> personal stories aside Wataru like avoids this dude by saying, I'm not looking to be a star. He's like, oh, it's a shame. And then like he also has like a pretty mature conversation with Kengo about like, hey, I want to do this and it's fun. I like doing it, but it's not my dream. And he's like, oh, and like Kengo actually has like a very bad initial reaction. He's like, oh, that's pretty selfish. And he's like, actually, I'm being selfish for thinking of that. It's fine. Like, I'm glad you have your dream. And like, yeah. I like the he. Yeah, it's weird because he like in the grand scheme of things ends up being one of the like better characters as far as empathy is concerned like he is very invested in this person that he calls his friend despite like coming off as someone that you would think just calls everyone but he tries very hard to like make this relationship be equitable and like functionable and it's very cool to see like how their interactions with each other start to play out he does need to like hear the violin and be like, oh, okay. Like before he stops being a jerk, but still like he like is a good guy here <laughs> until no. later when he's like hurt too by the like scammer. Yeah. Um, and then um in the eighties, Yuri and Jiro are flirting in a pool, and then Otoya shows up and he can't swim. <laughs> what a cock walk is like Jiro does that thing that you do before you're about to fuck in a pool where you pretend you're drowning and then when they like come to save you you're, like you're just like winking at them underwater like hey what's up <laughs> how you doing and yeah uh then there's just a basic scene <laughs> in this episode where nago fights a car and then the police arrest him the bounty hunter for how badly he brutalizes this dude yeah it's like fuck dude like it, that was if, a lot <laughs> Because, like, he presumably called the police to, like, back him up. Like, he'd be like, hey, I'm turning in this bounty. So, <laughs> and, like, I don't know how it's like in Japan, but, like, I feel like here the police would be like, would pull him back and be like, okay, our turn. But, you know, uh, stab. And then, like, he gets arrested, though. Um, and then we see Jiro is, um, He's stalking this woman to like eat her, and then he gets interrupted by Hotoya, um, who says he's the ally of all human women, and that Jiro should find a monster girl. And because he's the last of his species, he gets really mad and beats shit of Hotoya. But that was a very fun scene to watch. Yeah, and then like 
he's so mad that he drops the Ixa knuckle, and that's what Otoya gets and like fights him later at the end of the episode. Because like um that's when Jiro says he wants strong pups, and he's like, No, like I'm gonna beat the shit out of you. Yeah. Yeah. Can't say I didn't have the same urge after hearing that come out of it, just to be honest. Here's the thing. I think if you were open and honest, it's clear that Yuri and Jiro wanna fuck. <laughs> if you just said, Hey, I'm also a monster and I wanna have children, a lot of them. There's a lot of people being like, let's have some weird children in the show, but like Yuri might be down for it. Okay, I'll have some weird wolf. They're not fangires, they hate fangires. Okay. Okay, I'll be honest. I don't even like dudes, but with if it was Jiro, I'd think about it for a minute. Like, I, I, you know, just for a second. I think the fact that he's a monster, like, does, like, uh, make him sexier than the average dude. It's like that bad boy thing. It's like when all the girls decided they liked vampires after uh, Robert Pattinson played one. You know, same effect with Jiro. It's like now all of a sudden everybody wants to be, you know, werewolf baby carriers. I'd be on that train. I'll admit Werewolf it. baby carriers is right there with like the Emerald, like apartheid or whatever. Like, God damn it. For a band that that happened off show, I guess. But, you know, whatever. <laughs> but no, like as much as things get different, they stay the same. Mm-hmm. I think that every 20 years we find out that there's a lot of people who want to fuck vampires. Yeah. And you know what? In modern culture, that that grind has not stopped. It's just gotten more sudden advanced. and quick. Yeah. Yes. More advanced. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Um. And like when Kiva's fighting the rhinoceros one, um, he calls on like Basha, and um, they're playing dominoes. They all get knocked down, and then Jira just eats one of the dominoes. It's like okay. Like inside this castle, the vibes are great. <laughs> well, um, it's not gonna be good for your digestive tract, dude. Yeah, he's a monster. But um and the kanji for person and dream form the kanji for fleeting according to Kiva at the start of the episode. I was like, okay, dude, like are you talking to the four-year-olds here or the 40-year-olds here? <laughs> Who are you talking to? I feel like his answer would have been yes. Yes. I'm a, I'm a bat. <laughs> exactly. Figure it out for yourself, fucker. And so here, um, the boys are working construction to help get enough money for Kengo. And Nago gets talked to for being arrested. But also, he gets a lot of leniency. So I'm wondering if, like, there's something more going on. But, like, he gets a lot of leniency in these, like, episodes for just saying stuff like, I'm the best. Like, I know all who should live and who should die. Just all this weird stuff. Yeah, I kind of get the impression just from the way that his character is played is that he has been like rolling with this level of confidence for so long that even people who know better are like second guessing themselves. Like, oh, maybe he does know something I don't know. And I I kind of feel like that's how he gets away with it. Like, because he's one of those, um, he's almost like one of those gamblers in Vegas that has played enough good hands that people think that he has something to say, but in reality, it just kind of ended up working out in his favor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think 
he should get the powers taken from him. <laughs> yeah, me too. I just because I kind of feel like I have a, a foothold on Toku now. I'm kind of waiting for his redemption arc. But I also would be very satisfied to see him not be allowed to do shit for the rest of the series because he's kind of been a dick up to this point. Um, in the 80s, we see Yuri and Otoya talk about getting Ixa back. And like he's like playing off that he's fine and not suffering side effects. And like including there's like one meme that kind of comes from Kiva that like people outside of Kiva might show or use and it's the meme of him dancing right there where he's like just like doing his hands up and like thrusting and everything in, yeah. in the background. I could see where that would make a really good meme. I would meme that if it wasn't already one. Yeah. Could see it. And yeah. Um then the scout's like, ah, my house is a shrine to my victims. It's the graveyard of dreams. And it like transitions from the eighties to like two thousand eight where it's like way more people there. He's like, oh like here's like microphones here's baseballs all this stuff mm-hmm. and kengo does not respond well to being told he's scammed um and then um also during their date after we see otoya like in the bathroom like very like shaken up by the side effects we see um that like him and yuri are at the other monsters under a bridge massage and like shoe polish shack <laughs> And Jiro's on the roof. That was such a good scene. Like, I, I just love not only how they all interact with each other, but kind of how things played out after the characters left. And they were all just, like, poking fun at each other in that very realistic way. I, I just, I loved how that whole thing played out. That's where he's like, oh, yeah, we have to be careful, but I'm going to have tons of children. They're going to be real strong. <laughs> I'm going to have my puppies. Yeah. Um coffee freak. Yeah. And then in the modern time we get the uh or in the two thousand, I guess like not the modern time, but um we see that Wataru has followed the scout to his house and he is super upset. He's like he says um he's the only one he could ever forgive after he hears like mm-hmm. his weird pervert dreams of youth stuff. Mm-hmm. I I I liked that scene very much because it illustrated like on a very um I want to say innocent level how much he cared about like his rock star friend like he was willing to kind of deal with anything else in the world until he saw that this pervert had it out for this one person who had called him a friend for the first time in years. I thought that it was really neat how they made like play off of that to have his first like real anger within the series and i think too that um there's always this point like in disney movies like they've got the i want song in come rider it's like the i cannot forgive right moment where they like actually get angry in a real way Mm -hmm. and this was definitely it for him yeah yeah, and I think that it was even more impactful because his character as a whole is not someone to be angry. He isn't someone to, like, be vengeful. He isn't someone to, like, go out and look for, like, uh, a villain. So the fact that he found this one person that pissed him off just enough because this person attacked someone he cared about made that whole storyline that much better because it made him 
very humanized in a way that he hadn't had an opportunity to be before. And I just, um, it says so much about him that he can hate someone at this point too. He's like, he care he's has enough understanding of the world around him and relationship to it where he can do that. Where like, he hasn't really shown much emotion besides like big sadness and discomfort. Yeah. I think that, um, it's fun to like, we see his last form with the whole Frankenstein monster and stuff. And like, he finally gets that out. Um, and yeah, that is that episode though. Um, uh, besides, um, Otoya gets double teamed by the monsters and gets uh, the uh, the power taken back. But that brings us to our last of episodes and a very good ending, a very uh, lore ominous what's going to happen next ending. Mm-hmm. But episode 15, Resurrection, Checkmate 4, episode 16, Player, The Rules of Cruelty. So a lot going on here of... Uh, we see this weird dude grab some wires and says penalty. Um, and then in the modern times, we see him have amnesia trying to stop a crayfish from drowning. And like the way they differentiate him is that like in the past, he's like in black and like leather jacket and he has like his hair down. And in the in like the 2000s, he's like got his hair up and he's like very he plays the role pretty well for just like being a child character. Yeah, definitely agree. And we see, oh, he's the one who killed off the rest of the wolfen and stuff. And he's like this important person. Um, And his whole thing is like time trials of like, I got to kill all the people wearing cherry blossom colors. I got to kill all the people who've won more than $300,000 in the lottery. I think that's what makes him interesting, though, is because... There's a very bad habit um, within the series to assign very specific, like, triggers for everyone. So to come along and have this character is so very dynamic and has their very own tastes that don't necessarily conform to your expectations is what makes the series so interesting, is Mm. to have, like these quote-unquote villains who aren't necessarily after what you would assume that a traditional villain would be after. Yeah, because there's like some sideways logic there too. It's like We see him uh, in Yuri's flashback, like, oh, he killed all the scientists making the common rider system. That makes sense. But then like, here he's doing nothing. Like he's just committing <laughs> a lot of murder and either destroying power lines to electric himself or getting ice cream. Right. And he's so powerful that we see later where it's like, oh shit, like this is uh, very dangerous compared to like what we've seen so far. And yeah, um, he's very dumb and pleasant in like modern times. And they call him. So the word, the word die means big in Japan. So they call him die Chan, but the subs say biggie. (laughs) and i have a different feeling when i hear the word biggie than just a big man but like six raps i just came up with just now and i know that's not right but yeah uh and there's also like this like great scene where he talks to yuri in 1986 
and she's like, oh, what are you flirting with me? And then he just like leaves and she's like, wait, is that the guy whose face I said I'd never forget that murder by Bob? I think <laughs> it is. <laughs> and it's just like very odd moment. Like it's relatable. Yeah. And she as the woman who plays her as an actress is so amazing anyway to but just to be able to play that moment in a way that didn't make you like feel any animosity toward anyone just to make you be like, huh, is that a thing? Like that's talent. And I definitely appreciate it. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> I really do like think that, um, <laughs> it's, t- <laughs> I love that she has this whole thing that she like realizes the second, Oh shit. Was that the dude I was supposed to get revenge on? Like there's <laughs> just something very silly about that in a way that, is like yeah. I'm trying to find my glasses, but they're on my head. Oh wow. Just like that's what she did, basically. Exactly. <laughs> um and yeah, um so we see more shenanigans for Dai Chan. Like he like eats a boiling pot of mushrooms. He like can't use chopsticks. He like keeps like stabbing violins of We've all been there, honestly. And then he tries to help this girl, like Erica. And it's the kind of thing where it's like, okay, uh, we say the word romantic purely to mean like a relationship between people that is like loving, I guess, or whatever. Like, like, yeah. oh, but like r- romantic has like a broader definition, but I think definitely the girl on the bike is like a romantic notion. (laughs) Like, even if it's like, not like meeting love or sex or whatever, like it's like, Oh, like the girl on the bike. And there's this girl on the bike, um, named Erica who like her chain falls off. So Daichi is trying to help her out, but like, he's too clumsy. So Wataru helps her out. And then she says, thanks. Like have free food at my place. Um, and yeah, um, that like, Comes back next episode, but for here we see Jiro then tries to fight um to fight this man who who he calls Rook of the Checkmate Four, and he gets his ass kicked. Oh, big time! Uh, because he fights him um with his wolf powers, and then he fights him as a rider, and both times just like gets like pretty severely beaten. And gets his Um, tail handed to him. Yeah, yeah. Um, and like. The fight starts because like Yuri tries to attack him while he's having ice cream, and then like he's like, "Yo, what the fuck? That was my ice cream!" Like that's <laughs> why he's mad. Understandable, honestly. And like we also see um when Erica got back to the to the restaurant, she says, "Oh, this big clumsy guy tried to help me with like my bicycle." I was like, "Oh no, here it goes." Right. But, and. uh Wataru like fights him not knowing he's Daichan in like 2008 too and is like oh this is rough but um what do you think of like hearing oh he's um he's Rook of the Checkmate 4 that's kind of a loaded here's lore here's something that matters statement you know definitely and I actually was kind of stoked about it because one of the things that I've enjoyed is, is the way that um the writers consistently uh, link art and music and history together. So 
the fact that there was just that little bit of like huff of things to come in the future, I'm very stoked about because as I have had to do with a lot of these series, I've had to rein myself in and not watch ahead. So I'm I'm stoked to kind of see like what this foreshadowing is leading up to. Mm. And we get that like context later too. It's like, oh, um, is the ruling body of the Fangire and stuff, and like, okay, important, important, important. Um, and so they get their free food from before at the restaurant, and then the restaurant invites him to work there because he likes to need dough and is like friendly. Um, and this leads to more hijinks like he goes to deliver food and thinks oh i'm definitely bringing it to my friends right mm-hmm. uh but then also like the dad i guess that owns the restaurant and like works there with his daughter is like please let us keep this amnesiac man he's <laughs> athletic and big and i want him to have big athletic clumsy babies with my daughter and it's just like okay like you can't just like trade the big men around. Like he's a person. <laughs> like, you're just like please let us keep him. They still have feelings, but calm down. He's clumsy and like the customers love him. It's gonna be great. I want him to inherit my restaurant and marry my daughter and have big clumsy children. Exactly. You know him for two minutes. Relax. He has amnesia. What could go wrong? Exactly. And yeah, and like they're on like a like pedal boat together, and Erica's like, "Oh yeah, it's gonna be great." Like, I'm the girl on a bicycle, and you're a big clumsy dude. What could go wrong? Uh, um, yeah. yeah, and like, so like last time, Shizuka was very worried and was like, "Oh, let's call the police." But now, like, everybody but Wataru is like, "Oh, we ship him and Erica so much. Like, gotta have big clumsy restaurant babies." <laughs> that like he's the only one who's like maybe this is a bad idea guys we have to let this happen now yeah he's big and she was on a bicycle it's meant to be that's that's it guys it's done relax now we're gonna get our Aryan kids just calm down I don't know about that but uh, regardless of (laughs) in the 80s the boys team up because like Toya's leaving the hospital and like is like thanking a nurse by name. It's like, okay, you freaking <laughs> flirt. You scumbag. Yeah. I mean, if you want to get it, get it. You know, he's yeah. not dating anybody. That's true. But uh so then like he gets approached by Jiro, who's like, um, he has the best line of this whole thing, um where he explains who Rook is and like ask Otoya for help. And Otoya says, is he really that strong? Then Jiro says, yes. And also he's pissed. Mm-hmm. And then how Otoya responds is like he agrees, but says, well, Hydra's heads work together. That doesn't mean they won't eat each other. I was like, okay, this is cool as shit. And yeah, it's actually a pretty decent piece of wisdom. Yeah, and they knock out Yuri in the middle of the fucking <laughs> road to get the to like reach to her purse and get the like belt. And Megumi's in the modern time. She's researching old Fangire stuff, I guess. She's like a not really in the plot much, but she um 
researched a place that matched up something that Dai Chan remembered. So that's where they go. But um, then there are two fights with a. Um, so then Dai Chan actually comes back to his like memory and he kills everybody in the restaurant, including the people that hired him. And then like that's when Wataru like shows up. It's like, oh, you're like a fan guy and also evil and you have your memories back. And um, then that's when the boys in the 80s like go to fight him too and it's like oh he's much stronger than all of them (laughs) (laughs) uh because he beats um hotoya and jiro at the same time and then like leaves because he didn't win ice cream and that's (laughs) the only reason they're alive i mean we've all been there and then he stabs wataru through the chest and says oh you're the inheritor of kiva which great Great line. Uh, and then, like, he summons, like, a big CGI monster, which Nago wants to fight. Just like, hey, bitches, I'm here. N- new toy, new power. Exactly. Can't help it. And uh, we end on the cliffhanger of Wataru getting vored by the castle. Mm. But, yeah. Uh, and here we are. That is the next eight episodes of Murakiva. Uh this show's interesting. I like what it's doing with masculinity and protagonists and like confidence and who gets to be at the center of a story. Uh, also a weird show. It definitely is. And I know that uh, when we were kind of making the decision on the way to go for series, one of the things that you had mentioned to me was that this series was one that was big on um, kind of examining mental health. And you definitely didn't exaggerate that. Like, even characters who, like, seem to collectively have it together, all of them are struggling with And I love the way that the writers integrate that into the storyline to make it to where what each character is dealing with isn't the main issue of any of the episodes, but it definitely plays an important, like, byline. And that isn't something that's ignored and I think that's important I think a lot more media needs to have that I think like so I recently watched like the first episode of um, Winter Soldier and that was a show where I was like turned off a lot by like the military propaganda and like I was like clear that was approving their scripts but also like it was like oh characters like only had things going on if they were clearly stated and part of arcs and scenes directly. Like there wasn't a character who was dealing with something without having a conversation about it and directly dealing with it in scenes. And that's not how people are. You don't immediately be like, Oh, and now I am going to like have a scene about my deep seated, like problems of growing up alone without my parents. No, that's going to be interspersed throughout, you know, your life. Right. And there's, there are going to be um, interactions that aren't that obvious because it takes, you know, if you have a traumatic childhood or I don't even want to say childhood. If you have a traumatic event, if you have something that affects you, you probably aren't going to be able to talk about it in one lump sum. Like you're going to have a different set and team of people or friends that you process things with and that will, like you said, come out over time, but it's not going to be something that 
I think a lot of shows try to pan it into this corner of you're going to have like the big cathartic moment. You're just going to spill everything like that isn't reality. Humans don't work like that. So this kind of having a slow burn on what drives mental and emotional issues is a, a standout for this show. Yeah. And I think that it's just great that it's not always so in your face. Right. You know? Yeah, because people just don't operate that way. And I like to see bad people sometimes. And there's some definite bad people who are like, not like bad because they're edgy, the worst thing ever, but like, oh, I'm a shit bag. But like, I'm still here. And I'm still part of this whole process we're doing. Hey, what's some water? I hate music. Yeah, exactly. And I'm the same way, like, you know, just like most people, I obviously would prefer for the good guy to win. But if I'm, like, indulging in any kind of media, I want the bad guy to be someone I want to listen to. And that's something that the show does very well, is making it so it isn't so cut and dry. Like, even your quote-unquote bad guys mostly have reasons for why they are the way they are. And if you care enough to kind of delve into that history, you get a lot richer fabric for kind of what makes up these multiverses. Yeah. With that, though, I have to ask, who are your top three favorite characters at this point, Kamran Akiva? Oh, that's a tough one. So I have to say um, the monster Mr. Um, Okay, let me pull my notes back out. The monster from the very first couple episodes that we looked at that was Mr. Omura the Frog Fangire. Yes. Okay. So yeah, definitely him, just because I appreciated how much complexity his character had. Um let's see. I I actually have a name for these. Uh Shizuka Shizuka. Yes. Um, just because he always seems to show up at the last possible moment and then just kick ass. Like you are never quite expecting it, but she does it. And then uh, I have to say little Magu on the Irish coffee, just because I haven't laughed that hard in a while. So those would have to be my top three for this watch. Hey, listen, wondering who is my top three characters? Um, I'm going to say Wataru is great. He's just a weird little shy dude. Mm-hmm. And he's also the fan service uh, <laughs> with his unexpected brave moments yeah i can i can see i still like yuri a lot she's pretty strong um and the third is hard i guess that would also be mr homura because he's just a very strong one-off character he is yeah and for someone who like his character arc has a really deep impact so yeah i can see that and what was your favorite um design or effect oh that's tough um i'm going to have to say probably my favorite effect was when they were doing that uh, the rock band dream sequence and it's right before uh he starts to choke up when it's just showing everybody jumping up and down and being really into the music um i just i enjoyed the whole cinematography for that whole group setting I think I liked a lot the, um, I don't love a lot of these designs, but I guess the new purple form is pretty good. That's a fun design. Oh, definitely. Yeah. 
Or rather, like maybe actually like the rook is a great suit. It looks great. It's like very like intimidating. It's pretty good in that role. Um and last question for us. What outfits stood out for us? Because there were a lot of strange looks here. Oh goodness, yeah. Oh, one that stood out. <clears throat> yeah, there's a bit. Um not so many new ones, I guess, but Yeah. I liked um the weird school outfit, whatever the like scout for talent was wearing. But that was dumb. Yeah, I liked that too. And, and mostly because it was live me of Squid Games, which is a series I've become very attached to. Um, hmm. So, yeah, I can see that. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I can't say with any honesty that anything really stood out that much to me. Yeah, a lot of it was like um, generic outfits we'd seen already, too. Yeah. And like even the rock sequences, which is something I I wanted to, you know, kind of reflect on more. But even with those, a lot of those were the same clothes that they wear day in and day out. They just kind of filmed it with a sepia tone, so and really. Megumi had a weird leather outfit on that whole time. Yeah, in that weird kind of like half beret thing. Yeah, uh, I don't know. Not my thing, but I don't judge. I mean, uh, when you are judging Steph, I will find you uh, on the <laughs> on the internet. Um, people can find me on uh, Twitter at uh, hat underscore sis or on Instagram under at nobody much. Um, you can find me at www.arcademilitia.com. Um, unfortunately, we have run into some timing issues with releasing some of our episodes so we are going to get on to that but once again supply chain issues so what can you do so yeah that's it for me okay uh you can find me on twitter.com at james forge you can find the podcast at come right with me on twitter and instagram there's coming for episodes and articles there's coming for uh slash episodes for the various links out to different platforms if you need them. And then there's govmrevy.com slash merch for all of our merch with the proceeds going to the Trevor Project. Uh, it is the start of a holiday month. It's the start of Come Ride by Slay Tonight. Uh, we will definitely uh, really like appreciate too that uh, our merch, like 100%, that goes to charity. If you want to get some coasters or a shirt or like a towel or something, it's one of those things where... Um, that's not money going to us. Like if you just want to do that. Um, and also um, we're listening. If like, there's like a place that maybe just is smaller than the Trevor project or like more, sp- more specific that needs help too. Cause like, it's like that kind of thing. So just uh, do keep that in mind. It's a uh, not bad stuff. Um, I actually have one that I can do. If you don't plug in just real quick. Um, if you go to www.transanta.com, that is a place where um, trans youth can anonymously submit their holiday gift lists and you can donate to them with or without your name, completely up to you, and try to get them things that are difficult for younger people in those situations facing their you know, sexuality and gender identity to be able to achieve for themselves. So 
if you have a chance, go ahead and check that out and, you know, maybe throw a couple of bucks their way. Yeah, definitely. Like, um, that is a good cause. There are lots of great causes, but just, um, do think to right now, what do you need and what do you have? Like, not to say you shouldn't enjoy something in the hellscape that we call capitalism, but also like think about other people. That's a great place to start there too. Agreed. And I think uh, that's also a very good um, answer, Steph, to what we learned.